I'm Ryan Miller, Crops Extension Educator. Earlier this morning, we recorded an episode of the Strategic Farming Field Notes program. Strategic Farming Field Notes is a weekly program addressing current crop production topics. A live webinar is hosted at 8 a.m. on Wednesdays throughout the cropping season. During the live webinar, participants can join in the discussion and get questions answered. An audio recording of the live program is released following the webinar via podcast platforms. Thanks, and remember to tune in weekly for a discussion on current cropping and crop management topics. All right, welcome back to Strategic Farming Field Notes, everyone, and good morning. So these sessions are brought to you by First University of Minnesota Extension, along with generous support from Minnesota farm families through the Minnesota Soybean Research Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research Promotion Council. So we're glad you could join us today. Today we're going to talk about corn agronomy, especially pollination and what's going on there, and then also what's happening with soybean insects. So first, we're going to welcome Dr. Jeff Coulter, our Extension Corn Specialist with the University of Minnesota Extension. And then later on, we'll have Dr. Bob Cook, our soybean entomologist with the University of Minnesota Extension. And we are going to work with uh, Dr. Coulter first. He has to leave a little bit earlier. So if someone does have a question related to corn agronomy, please get those in earlier before Jeff has to leave about halfway through the session here. And with that, I think I'll turn it over to Jeff for kind of what's happening with the um, status of corn across the state. I know we are getting a little bit of rain this morning in Southern Minnesota, or just about to it looks like, um, but drought conditions have been happening across the state. So how has that been affecting what we're seeing in terms of uh, crop quality so far? Thanks, Anthony. Well, uh, you know, we're about eight to 10 days ahead of normal, normal depending on where we're at uh, across the state. And on top of that, we were planted about two weeks later than normal. So uh, the corn has really grown quickly with the warm temperatures that we had earlier this summer. Uh, generally warmer temperatures than average during the vegetative period up to now, that doesn't really hurt the corn too much. Um, but when we have warmer temperatures during pollination and during grain fill, that can have more of a detrimental effect on the crop. Um, you know, right now, uh, you know, it's pretty dry in a lot of places. Uh, it's not an extreme drought, except for in a few isolated areas, but it's, it's quite dry. Um, some rainfall was picked up recently. It looks like there's a little bit of a chance later this week, but I think that's questionable. Uh, the good news is, is that the temperatures look like they, you know, they've really subsided and are going to be more uh, mild here over the next week, and that's going to be very helpful for the crop. Um, you know, if we can keep those temperatures in the 80s for the highs, uh, that's going to minimize stress on the corn. Um, I was seeing some tassels as early as June 30 in some places on irrigated sands. Um, and then right now, a lot of places are starting to tassel or are getting very close. It looks like next week is really going to be the heart of the pollination period for much of the corn in Minnesota. And fortunately, the temperatures look like they're going to be favorable for the crop so that the crop's not going to be using an excess amount of water. But we are definitely in the critical period right now for yield determination in corn, and that's going to last through early August. So um, if we can have soil moisture levels be sufficient that we're not stressing the corn, that is going to help to maximize yield. And any soil moisture stress that we're experiencing between now and then is going to have uh, some sort of a degree of uh, reducing yield potential on the crop. 
Now there's basically two ways that yield can be reduced in corn due to drought stress at this time of year. Uh, the first one is uh, it, it causes a delay in silking, but it really doesn't slow down the tassel emergence or pollen shed. And in this case, uh, some of the silks that emerge late from the tip of the ear do not receive pollen. And uh, therefore those potential kernels never are fertilized and they don't develop into actual kernels. Uh, that's not quite as common in Minnesota. The thing that's more common in Minnesota is that we have a successful pollination where all or the majority of the potential kernels receive pollen and they develop into actual kernels, but then it gets dry. And uh, those kernels that were fertilized, especially near the tip of the ear, they turned into kernels, but it's dry and they have a high demand for moisture. And then they just kind of dry up and shrivel and are lost. So that's typically the most common uh, way that uh, we reduce yield in Minnesota due to drought stress at this time of the year. The other thing to remember is that uh, once we get past this critical period, you know, we get into mid-August and beyond, then we're starting to move into the grain filling period. And even though that's not as critical as the pollination period window right around now, um, that does have a, a great potential for reducing yield because that's determining the size of the kernels. So there's basically two yield components in corn. The first one is how many kernels can you establish? The second one is what is the size of those kernels? So right now we're in this period where we're gonna be establishing how many kernels do we have? And whatever we can, well, whatever happens that allows us to have more kernels is gonna help us to have higher yield. So it seems exactly. like right now we're under some degree of stress in the corn. I'm not too concerned about it. The upcoming temperatures look more favorable, but we're definitely, the corn is definitely under stress in most areas. It's probably gonna take the top off of the yield potential. And Jeff, we actually did have a question come in too. They're just wondering what exact plant stage is determining the number of kernels that are established. So it is pretty much right around tasseling through pollination, um, kind of what window or uh, folks kind of wanting to keep an eye out for that in terms of when they can be you know, confident that the number of rows are set in. Yeah, so in corn, the number of uh, rows per ear, uh, the girth of the kernel, that's just that's determined around the V7 stage. And then the number of potential kernels or the potential length of the ear is determined between about V8 and up until just before tasseling. And then... Um, during the pollination period when the tassels first come out up until um, through the blister stage, um, which is a about 12 days after the tassels first emerge, that's when we have potential for, um, a good potential for the, for the kernels at the tips of the ear to be lost, either due to drying out or uh, not receiving pollen during the pollination period. And it even goes in, th in through the milk stage as well. So we can lose kernels up through the milk stage. And then after the corn reach corn gets through the milk stage and moves into the dent or the dough stage, at that point, we can't lose any more kernels. And at that point, any stress at that point and beyond is just going to reduce kernel size. Thanks. So in terms of variability across the state, we talked a little bit where um, you know, folks, especially further south, are starting to see more tasseling going on uh, up here, kind of central, west central Minnesota. There are a lot of fields that, you know, you, if you 
look in the world and kind of dig in there. You'll see the tassel, but it's, yeah, maybe you've got a week or so, like you said. So are we expecting any you know, differences in the corn crop across the state just based on you know, that um, difference in development in terms of how weather might affect things? Or is it looking pretty consistent in terms of um, you know, this cooler weather benefiting across the board? I think across the board, this cooler weather is definitely gonna help us. It's gonna reduce the amount of water use by the crop quite a bit. Um, so that's that's gonna help us kind of skate through this uh, probably without having as large of yield reductions as what we would if it was say in the low 90s. So um, that's favorable, um, but there is a lot of variability out there. You know, some of that corn was planted quite early and tasseled early and looks good, others, Others was planted a little later and is a little behind, but not too far behind. And then we have areas that were planted early or had emergence problems. And there's just a lot of variability in those fields due to that. But um, yeah, it's, I think we're on track for kind of an average year for an average crop. Good. Um, so this is another question I had come in and it's something we usually don't think about this time of year too much, but how cool is too cold for corn in terms of uh, pollination time? When would we have issues? Because um, some folks are kind of wondering, it's like, well, it's cooling down. Is it too cold? But I think we're not worried about that right now. But um, when would it actually be too cold for corn this time of year? Yeah, I'd say when the high temperatures get, uh, you know, below the low 70s, then we have some, you know, potential for some issues to develop. Uh, sometimes falling occurs if there's cloudy conditions, potentially uh, with cooler temperatures. But generally, I, I'm not too concerned about the cooler temperatures. Uh, the highest corn yields in the world occur in areas that are basically deserts, like Arizona or California that are irrigated, that have high temperatures during the day with lots of sun, and then at night it cools down. So I think, uh, I think we're on track. Um, with this cooler temperatures to you know reduce water use and help us out quite a bit there i wouldn't get too concerned until the low temps get into the or the high temps get into the low 70s or or below so i know um you know some folks have been getting hail in some parts of the state so given the stages we're at um what do folks want to be keeping an eye out for what's maybe not so much concern at these stages uh, in terms of hail damage well, right now is the worst time of the year to receive hail damage in corn, essentially because we've got almost all or all of the leaves are exposed and we haven't uh, set any kernels or filled any grain at this point. So if we're losing leaf area, uh, there's, there's really no more leaf area in the plant that's going to come out uh, to replace that. Uh, things to think about this time of year. Uh, with hail damage is, um, you know, how, how's the plant doing? Uh, did we lose the tassels? Uh, how are the ears doing? You know, we can lose quite a few tassels and still have plenty of pollen out there to spread around and, and fertilize all the silks, assuming that the remaining tassels are fairly evenly distributed. You know, there, there can be two to 20 million pollen grains per tassel, and there's only about 800 silks per plant. So there's a way more pollen than there is uh, silks. And if we got a little wind, that should spread it around. Um, the other thing to think about is how is that, uh, that ear, was that damaged? And if the primary ear, the upper one was damaged uh, and it hurt greatly, then the, the ear below it 
oftentimes will develop into the, the full ear. So um, those are some things to think about. Also stock damage, um, look at some of the stock wounding. Uh, that can be quite severe. Um, that could cause stock lodging later in the season. Um, basically now is not a good time to get hail damage in your crop. All right, I know you got to run after this. So one last question for you. Um, do you want to make any guesses in terms of how you think yield's going to turn out this fall, just based on what we've seen so far? Um, is it going to be a you know, pretty decent year, just based on conditions so far, if folks have gotten through dry conditions okay? Or is it going to be you know, roughly average, you think? I would say we're on track for maybe 5% below average, uh, potentially up to average. Uh, depending on on what's going to happen here. So if we start pick up, picking up moisture and the temperatures remain favorable, we could do very well. But if uh, it can, if the second half of the growing season kind of mimics the first half where we have very limited rainfall, even if the air temperatures are down uh, and more cool like they are this week, um, that's really going to take a toll on our crops. So uh, I think we'll 5% below average or potentially averages kind of what we could look at, but, uh, you know, it's still quite early to make any um, guesses that are going to be real accurate. All right. Well, thank you. And Dr. Jeff Coulter has to uh, run here. So thank you again. And we will transition over to soybean insects and what's happening in that realm of uh, crops there. So uh, Dr. Bob Cook, thank you for joining us again here. And just to start off, um, it seems like you've kind of got a fuller plate now with different insects we're dealing with and soybeans. So do you want to tell everyone just, you know, what is everything on your radar for uh, soybeans this growing season for insects that you're dealing with? Yeah, it's turning into uh, certainly an interesting year for entomology in, in soybean and, and other field crops. And I guess like Ken Ossie always used to say, if an entomologist says things are getting interesting, farmers should be concerned. Um, you know, so we know there are all the issues earlier on with uh, army worms, um, you know, so now we're kind of transitioning into a lot of these issues tied to the dry weather. You know, that's a lot of what you and Jeff were discussing, the drought conditions, dry weather throughout the state. That has a big impact on insect populations as well, and it, it really helps some of these insect and mite pests. So we're getting more and more reports and concern about grasshoppers. And that's been kind of building over the last two or three years with, you know, consecutive dry years. Um, grasshoppers are defoliating insects, a lot of times moving into the fields from surrounding uh, habitats. And they can be quite, quite problematic. Um, spider mites are another issue. I think a lot of people know that, that they're mainly problems under drought conditions. Uh, we've been seeing mites in a lot of fields. Uh, for some time, but numbers had remained pretty low. But uh, I just heard through Bruce Potter that there are some fields in, I believe it was West Central and Southwest Minnesota that are starting to show some uh, symptoms of injury from the mite. So I think it's something that people will certainly need to be uh, paying attention to. Um, so those are kind of the two key insects that are really favored by the drier conditions. Another insect that we want to be paying attention to is soybean aphids. Soybean aphids typically do not like the real high temperatures. It slows down their reproduction, decreases their survival. 
Um, but we're getting into a spell now, as you and Jeff were saying, where temperatures are moderating a bit, you know, so that's going to make things more favorable for soybean aphid population growth. So I think folks are going to definitely want to be scouting their fields now, paying attention to aphids as well. Um, and for soybean aphids, you know, I think those early planted fields um, in the early part of the year are going to be the most attractive. And as we get into the later season, you know, you might want to transition and start looking at some of the, the later planted fields. Um, yeah, I guess I'll let you see what you think of that and what questions you have. Yeah, so um, continuing on, so I've been there, you know, each year we'll have folks earlier on kind of thinking, hey, should I be treating for soybean aphids in early July? Um, you know, maybe they have scouted and just found a few um, and are maybe thinking, well, there's that 250 aphid threshold, but they're deciding to spray earlier. So what's going on in those situations um, in terms of economics and how that threshold actually works? Yeah, that's that's always a concern, right? You know, if you're out there scouting, scouting your field, you see some aphids. I think a lot of times there's that temptation to to hit them with an insecticide. You know, especially if you're going through with a herbicide or you know making some other pass through the field. Um, you know what that's going to do is you'll get rid of those few aphids that are there. But what that's also doing is it's exposing that aphid population to that insecticide more, which can increase the chances for further insecticide resistance development. And we, we know we have an issue with that for the pyrethroids in Minnesota and the surrounding states. It exposes other pests in those fields to those insecticides, which can increase the risk for resistance development in them. And we, we had some indications of that for spider mites, you know, uh, several years ago. And, you know, thinking about the economics of it, the research to date is still showing that the 250 aphid per plant threshold is still a pretty conservative threshold for protecting soybean yield. So if, you know, if you only literally have, you know, few aphids per plant, it, it's, it's not going to affect the yield of those plants. You want to keep scouting those fields to monitor those populations. Aphid populations can increase rapidly. You know, so that's why we recommend scouting, you know, ideally weekly, but, you know, maybe every 10 days um, to keep tabs on that field. And if the populations reach those higher levels, then start insecticide effort. And in terms of that uh, 250 threshold, that's actually not the point where damage is occurring yet, right? That's right. I think of the 250 aphids per plant as, as the trigger point where you want to start lining up that insecticide application to knock that population down before it reaches those higher damaging levels. And one thing we've been seeing more and more in the recent years is aphid populations increasing to maybe 100 aphids per plant and then kind of plateauing there, you know, where in the earlier years, a lot of times it would just continue to increase your skyrocket, reach very high levels. But um, not exactly sure if it's, you know, this new parasitic wasp or some of the other natural enemies um, adjusting to it more and uh, knocking those populations down after they reach a certain level. It's not to say that aphids will not reach outbreak levels and cause problems in fields. Um, you know, we, we need to scout to determine which fields have the problems and then make our spray decisions based on that. And Bruce Potter has a good comment too that when we're looking at those thresholds, it's 
the average of all the plants in the field, not just the worst plants. And yeah, you you might in a bad year find a plant that has a thousand, two thousand aphids, and that isn't always a signal that uh, you need to be treating. Uh, it's still going to bump your average up a lot. But if it's just one plant and all the rest are relatively clean, then yeah, you really aren't in a situation where you may need to treat. Yeah, that, that's a really good point for, for all the insects in, in any crop, right? You want to get a good representative sample from throughout the field, you know, not just the edge, you know, get out there, walk around that field. You know, a lot of times you recommend like making like a M-shaped pattern, kind of zigzagging through the field to make sure you get good coverage and you're not making that decision just based on a hotspot. Yeah, that's a good point. So Bob, uh, in terms of other pests, I know Northwest Minnesota, they were dealing with uh, green clover worm up there. So that, um, in that case, what was happening with that pest? And um, is that something folks should be keeping an eye out for still, or is that something that's more early season? Well, I, so green clover worms, they're um, a green colored caterpillar. Uh, if you look really closely, they've got three pairs of abdominal prolegs. They've been the main caterpillar that, that I've seen in Minnesota soybean over recent years. We also get some thistle caterpillar. Um, but this year, it's been mainly the green clover worm. Uh, talking with Angie Peltier up in the Northwest, yeah, she, they were seeing some pretty high numbers up there, I think, in some fields. Uh, one thing to keep in mind with those is, uh, you know, they are pretty susceptible to some diseases that help keep their populations in check. So just because you see them doesn't mean you need to freak out and spray. Again, you want to be scouting. Um, in this case, we typically recommend looking at uh, making decisions based on percent defoliation. So again, going through that field, getting a representative sample of plants kind of from throughout the field, and then looking at leaves from the top, middle, and bottom of the plant and estimating the percent defoliation on those, and then averaging that percent defoliation from those three different heights on the plants and then across all those plants. And we're still recommending the threshold of 30% defoliation during the vegetative stages and 20% defoliation during the reproductive stages of soybean. Uh, you might be hearing some folks in other states recommending some lower thresholds for those reproductive stages down to 10 to 15%, but um, we're not convinced yet that, that we need those lower thresholds in Minnesota. One important thing to keep in mind is a, a lot of folks tend to overestimate defoliation. So they look at a leaf and, um, you know, it might be only 10% defoliation there, but it looks a lot worse than it really is. You know, so somebody might come away, you know, estimating that as 30, 40% instead of that 10%. So there are some resources online that you can use to, to train your eye in estimating defoliation. And we've got those on the University of Minnesota Extension webpage. You can find them in some other locations online. And there's even some software out there if you really want to get into it where you can, uh, or an, an, an app where you can snap pictures of leaves and then it estimates the defoliation for you. Yeah, so we got a couple questions coming in now, Bob. Uh, one is, uh, let's see, James is wondering about if they had fields with moderate soybean aphid populations now, um, is there a way to account for the number of days aphids are actually out in the field? And I think that's kind of baked into our thresholds a little bit, isn't it? Yeah, so I'm, I think that kind of gets into what uh, we sometimes talk about as cumulative aphid days. So it's kind of like how uh, degree days accumulate, how thermal units accumulate over the season. 
Um, in this case, it's how aphid pressure accumulates over the season. So the number of aphids on the plant and factoring the number of days they're there, the 250 aphid per plant threshold is actually kind of back calculated from a cumulative aphid day um, context. The challenge is I think a lot of people aren't scouting their fields necessarily regularly enough to have a good estimate of cumulative aphid days, but um, those, those thresholds are out there and we've got that information in some of the, uh, the online extension materials as well. I think it's, if, if the folks are, if people are willing to invest the time in doing it, it might be a better, potentially better approach for estimating the potential um, stress to those plants from the aphids, but it, it is a little more intensive to do so. Okay. A um, couple more questions coming in. One is uh, asking about steward insecticide. So we uh, talk about that a lot over in the alfalfa side for alfalfa weevil. I don't believe we have anything listed for that on soybean aphid or other soybean insects that I can think of primarily. Right yeah, now. I'm I'm blanking right now. I think is that one of the mixtures with diamide? Uh, let's say group twenty-two um, in doxycarb. Oh. Um... It's I was not in our soybean aphid list, at least I know. Yeah, I, you know, I'm, I'd have to double check. I'm not sure if you might see that for maybe some of the caterpillars in soybean. Mm -hmm. okay. but, but we, let's double check on that. Yeah. Um, one other quick question. Did you have the name of that leaf defoliation app on hand? Oh, it's called Leaf Bite, B-Y-T-E. I'm pretty sure. Okay. Uh, yeah, right. I, I think most folks don't need that level of detail. Um, you know, there are some different extension resources out there where it's just different pictures of leaves with different levels of defoliation. And I, I think that can get you a close enough ballpark estimate. And for a field to truly be at a threshold level, you know, be at the 20% or 30%, that field's going to look pretty, pretty ravaged. Um, but keep in mind that, that soybean is a very resilient crop. Um, it can tolerate, as we know, you know, fair amounts of stand loss early in the season. And then throughout the season, it, it can tolerate or compensate for uh, pretty substantial amounts of defoliation. All right. And we got just a couple minutes left, Bob. So last question, how about new insects that have come in for soybeans, soybean gall midge, and then also this new leaf miner that's come in as well. Um, kind of what's the current status of those and have we seen much for developments this year on those two species yeah as if all these other pests that we just talked about aren't enough um soybean gall midge has has been in the state for a number of years um but mainly in the southwestern part of the state um it this year we were finding it again um from what i've heard from my students and in conversations with bruce potter i think the Numbers are appearing to be lower than they were several years ago, but I, I think time will tell for this infestation. Um, finding larvae in plants, uh, symptomatic plants that are showing wilting. Um, so that's something to be aware of, but not something to overreact to yet. I think the, uh, I can pretty confidently say the vast majority of fields in Minnesota will not need any kind of treatment for this pest. We've only really seen heavy infestations in, in a couple areas or a couple uh, farms 
in the state or lately just just one farm and even on that one it's probably not necessarily at levels that would require treatment um the other pest is a leaf mining moth it's a, a tiny little moth and its caterpillars live inside the leaves this is a native insect that that feeds on a couple native plants and for whatever reason in the last couple years it decided to start feeding on soybean um, most of the research and scouting we're doing is down along the um, Minnesota River Valley, kind of between the Twin Cities and Mankato, um, but we've seen it in some other areas as well. Um, we've got some crop news articles, you know, uh, Minnesota Extension crop news articles that have some pictures about it. We've got a fact sheet. So you want to look at the undersides of the leaves and they make these little um, kind of light colored blotches on the leaves where the, the larvae are feeding in there and kind of killing those tissues in the leaf. And as the caterpillars or larvae get bigger, then you can start see the, seeing the uh, spotting or tenting of the leaf from the upper side. And the, the name that's been approved for this insect now is the soybean tentiform leaf miner. Um, it really likes the edges of fields and especially edges with trees. Yeah, so hopefully we'll hear more about that one in the future and maybe it won't be as much of an issue as uh, could potentially be, but I know I, I did hear someone describe that, you know, when you look at that kind of tent look on the leaf, it kind of looks like either uh, you know, popcorn or a rice puff or something like that. Um, yeah. yeah. And yeah, it's kind of takes you by surprise a little bit when you do see that kind of puffed up leaf there. So right. it's pretty right. distinctive. Anthony, All right. one, yep. one more one more quick thing, if I, if I can, yep. um, getting back to soybean gall midge, if anybody is aware, of infestations. Uh, I would certainly like to hear about it. We've got some different research projects going on where we'd really like to get out and sample some more fields. So if you're aware of uh, soybean gall midge infestations in soybean, uh, please reach out, let us know. All right, thanks, Bob. And thanks everyone for attending today's session on corn agronomy updates and soybean insects with Dr. Jeff Coulter and Dr. Bob Cook here. Join us again next week at the same time for uh, updates on diseases and soybean agronomy as well there. So thank you everyone and we will see you next week. Again, we wanna thank our uh, support from Minnesota Soybean Research Promotion Council and the Minnesota Corn Research Promotion Council. And uh, that generous support has helped uh, kind of keep this uh, webinar going very well over the last few years here. So again, thanks for that. All right, everyone, we will see you next week. Thank you.